0: This is Robert Capuccio. welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. Roy Sugarman. Wow. Okay. So we have done this many times before, once before on this show, but we've done this so much through the years. For those of you who don't know, aside from me and Roy being mates going back, oh God, wow, it's, it, it's well over a decade at this point, maybe even more towards two. Roy is a clinical psychologist, a neuroscientist. His resume is, is about three meters long and he's just done so much amazing stuff around the world. And I'm so happy to have you back. Thank you for being here. Dr. Roy Sugarman.
1: It's wonderful to be back. Thank you for inviting me again.
0: Well, last time we were talking, this conversation has been about a year in the making. I'm just going to come right out with it because there's a lot of information on both sides of this conversation. Is there any such thing as free will?
1: Um, Bobby, this has now become a big, you know, contentious discussion, especially since people like Robert Sapolsky have written his book, Determined, and and there's a whole range of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's a massive book because it's a massive argument. And it it really begins with the idea, well, the world's out of control, but there is a force, there is a deity up in... Heaven that uh you know commands everything. What is the role then for the human being? The idea being we have free will, we can choose and we can do so logically. We are Homo sapiens. Uh we're also Homo secretus, but that's another one. Uh we're Homo sapiens, and we can think our way through. And and Descartes made this enormous error as Damasius pointed out, of of some kind of a binary here again that there is a body-brain duality and we think therefore we are and the idea being we can think and therefore we can contain control our existence make rational logical decisions even the court system would say you have free will you make logical rational decisions to go left or go right in the quran even don't ask god for too much you have to lock up your own camels to avoid them being stolen uh so it's been around a long time but when neuroscience becomes involved, then it becomes a much more interesting and less philosophical discussion. And many of the arguments about free will are philosophical. They're well-reasoned, but where are the philosophers getting their free will from is a debate. So when you cross into neuroscience, it starts to get really interesting because, and, and let's just say what is free will, Free will is the idea that our brain now decision-making, thinking, logical pondering is a single uniform machine with all of the parts on team Bobby or team Roy. Nothing could be further from the truth. What we have evolved uh, across time are several different circumstances. And I often start with my students by saying, "If if you take your hand and you drop one finger, What command did your brain give? If you could put it into words, what command did your brain give? And the students will say the command the brain gave was this finger needs to drop. But evolution is a tinkerer. Evolution is not a scientist. What did evolution do? Number one, the first signal that went out from your brain was make a fist. The pyramidal system said make a fist. The extra pyramidal system that came much later in life, and there's relevance here to the um, sequence in which these things developed, the pyramidal system needed us to hold on to tree branches or whatever else or to weapons. The extra pyramidal system has to override the fist closure and tell all the fingers, don't listen, except it doesn't tell the one finger, the one finger drops. So we have these overriding systems. The system which makes us taste bad food and want to retch is the same system that says, I looked at a photograph of this guy and it made me sick to my stomach. He is such a criminal. You know, We hijack these lower systems. What does this mean for free will? There are two systems in our brains fighting for control of the human body morning, noon, and night. And if one of them can win, It will do, and here's the problem. These are not equal systems. There is a very old limbic emotional system which is getting information quickly, rapidly, before the rest of the brain, making emotional decisions as to the threat of it and sending out signals about what to do. On the other hand, there is a janitorial system much more recent in evolution that has to try and modify that. It is work as janitorial, and here's the problem. The old system is powerful, inaccurate. The new system is slow and accurate, but not nearly as powerful. We have two opposing systems, feeling and thinking, or rather more accurately in Damasio terms, emotions and thinking. And for every three neurons coming off the emotional side, there are two neurons going back. It's not an equal fight. Emotions make fools of us all, right?
0: You know, I'm, I'm a big Robert Sapolsky fan as well. And w- when I opened up another quite comprehensive book he wrote, Behave, within yeah. the introduction, he had me. And he had me within one quote that summarized everything that motivated the book behave. And it was, it's complicated. And he goes on to explain, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but the title of this podcast is the self-help antidote for a reason. Yes. And he says, it's complicated and you better think real hard and you better be real careful before you make the assumption that you understand what is causing a specific behavior. And then he goes deeper yes. into the intention and the motivation. He says, especially if you have a negative connotation around what that behavior means. And I know me and you have both worked together, um, either adjacent alongside and sometimes on the same exact team in the health and fitness industry. And people will come to very definitive conclusions about why someone says they want one thing, but they behave in a way that's contrary to that. And usually those assumptions are not flattering and and they're not helpful very often, but we we have certainty that we're right. But then you take a look at Felitti and Anda and the work with adverse childhood experiences and, and the ACE study, and you take a look at... Nadine Burke Harris, when she wrote The Deepest Well, and she tells the story of Patty, someone who is extremely accomplished, um, extremely successful, and someone who was overweight, And went ahead and lost all the weight. She was all the way at the other side of it, where where she should have been celebrating her successes. Most of the hard work was done because that's the assumption. Well, they're just not willing to do the work. Everybody wants a great body, but nobody really is willing to do the work. And and I think what people Mm -hmm. are saying, like me, because I'm amazing, I'm disciplined, I have willpower. As a matter of fact, if you think about any, any adjective that is admirable, I possess it. But other people know they do not. And it's that it's that fundamental attribution bias. And then you find out that there were things in her childhood that created a behavior pattern that she wasn't even aware of. And you couldn't possibly begin to understand. And it's like, wow, are we serving people like Patty? Because granted, that's not everyone. But there are a lot of nuances that lead to our behavior. And is our blind sense of certainty about one another, is it useful or is it destructive to the individual and to communities as a whole? And that's why I'm so interested in this conversation around free will. What do we do with
1: all this information? Well, some people seem to have more of it and some people seem to have less of it. Mm-hmm. You know there are people from the Holocaust who German soldiers or police who refuse point blank to do what they were told to do you know one of those is the is, is featured them is featured in in the pianist the movie as a man who who absolutely sought out to help people Oscar Schindler's famous for it. so um if they were totally free will they would be. Perhaps no Treblinkas or Auschwitzes or anything else that goes on. So the the question is, as you said, how do we produce a behavior and are we clear on what that behavior is in terms of its causality in the seconds, minutes, hours, days, centuries, millennia before that? Um, And when people come to you with anxiety, this is a particularly interesting one. They will have decided what the playground for that anxiety is. They wake up one morning feeling terrible. They make the attribution that this is cancer or brain tumor or something else. Somebody else might wake up with the same feeling as a youngster and think it must be a monster under my bed, something I can't see. Well, there are things I can't see, monsters and whatever else. And then act accordingly, go to the doctor and say, I'm sure I've got a brain tumor because I feel X, Y, and Z, or I'm having a heart attack because I have chest pains. Um, We look for playgrounds in which our behavior would make sense or our feelings would make sense. Our feelings be and let me you know clarify the terms, emotions are non-conscious physical states, feelings is an appreciation of that state, thinking is the mopping up. We try to make the janitorial clean up. And what we don't realize is how much of the decision-making, how much of what's going on, which will eventually result in an action, in a behavior, is colored by things that never occurred to us, by things that are in our non-conscious workings. We don't use the word unconscious. In the non-conscious processing of stuff, we have this really old millions and millions of year old system that doesn't know what's going on. It doesn't have to. It's a knee jerk, quick, get you out of there, watch out, duck, do whatever. And Sapolsky and others have come up with their zebras don't get ulcers. Human beings have relational frame learning. So thoughts can create misery. Um, we can turn anger on ourselves. We can displace anxiety into aggression. Uh, most people don't realize, for instance, that their sense of other people's disapproval of them is driven by testosterone, that their lovely oxytocin, kumbaya bonding, wonderful hormone makes them racist to people who are not like them, depending on where they grew up. and The dark side of oxytocin. You... Absolutely, because like dopamine, which is not a reward uh, hormone on its own, it's a pain mediation hormone, it can put you into pain and hold you there. If you push it up using drugs, it will crash through because everything's got a dark side to it. Our emotions have a particular avoidance mechanism involved with it. And um, not only that, the willingness to confront pain and anxiety is part of Healthy avoidance isn't, and yet our emotional system will try and get us to not go near that tree that had a leopard. So, the lot going on that you mentioned is the critical idea. There is so much going on that we have no idea of. It is going to factor into whether we avoid or approach a situation, whether we regard a person as a good guy or bad guy. When we're stressed, are we more likely to believe in conspiracy theories? And therefore, okay, I'm not going to wear a mask because it's part of a government conspiracy. But if your family were farming in rice paddies and collaborating in big villages for 500 years, you're going to wear the mask. If, on the other hand, you come from a northern Chinese mountain group, for instance, or you're descended from people who ran around with goats in the north of England or in the desert, you're more likely to say, I have autonomy. I will not wear a mask. We don't realize what is coloring it.
0: So you're saying basically, I may think that I'm making a decision based on my beliefs, my values, and my assessment of the situation, but what's driving that could be thousands of years of conditioning based on my ancestors, and did they need more of a communal or an individualistic type of culture in order to survive?
1: Sure. But the narcissism and the arrogance is that because we can think, as Descartes said, this is where Damasio lost it with him, the idea that we think, and therefore this defines our entire existence, the thinking can lead us down the garden path of really bad things. Because there are things we learn across the ACE years, you know, which could be traumatic or not. There are things we learn across from zero to 25 have nothing to do with genes In other words, how we take in our culture, our culture response to the environment, that may dictate what we do in how we speak to our kids 25 years later and it can also have a lot to do with what our mother experienced while we were in the womb being bathed in cortisol. It may include whether we had a male fetus with us as a twin or a female fetus with us as a a twin bathing us in his testosterone, changing the way we respond to career, early marriage, sexual identity, any kind of stuff that comes in and what we do in, in our workplace, as far as we're concerned, if we're a male, we're supposed to do this, female can be colored simply by the intrauterine experience, the whole idea of epigenetics. It is a complex picture of there is no simple, I thought, therefore I did, is arrogant. I not only thought, I also had non-conscious biases going on. Let's give a simplest example of that. I'm looking forward to a family event six months from now, and in my mind and talking to the relatives, this is going to be amazing. On the other hand, I'm thinking forward to having had a, needing a tooth taken out and an implant putting in, this is going to be unbearable. Impact bias makes us believe that the upcoming amazing thing is going to be better than it turns out to be in reality. And vice versa, it makes us think that the bad thing coming up is going to be intolerable and worse than we think it is. And so where would that come from? It is a selection of non-conscious emotional valences or salience that has been added to the idea of our thoughts. Our thoughts aren't clean. Just because we think we're making a decision, we've got the pros and cons and we have worked it on a piece of paper, the final decision can be completely emotional, completely irrational, Which is why 74 million people will vote for someone who may be the worst possible candidate, but emotionally looks really good.
0: Okay, and we're not going to get into who that person is because the, the 70 plus million people on one side think, yeah, you're talking about that candidate. And the 70 plus million people on the other side are going, well, surely it's the other candidate you're talking about. But that leads me into something. But the idea of logic,
1: the idea of a relational framework that is mm-hmm. completely logical, that is based on language and reasoning. And we are this, you know, homo sapiens way beyond that. There is a huge mess going on at some level, which was there to protect us against very simple things that is going to be hijacked by all of this high level thinking and going to color our political social conservative right wing left wing middle range, whether or completely colored by other things
0: it's it leads me to a place that i'm I'm pretty curious about, and i'd, I'd like to I like to explore you know years ago, I had a conversation with another highly accomplished neuroscientist, Dr. Joseph Ledoux, out of NYU, and he was talking about to your point from an evolutionary perspective sometimes speed is more important than accuracy you know go ahead and yes. analyze and think later <clears throat> if hopefully there is a later in an emergency situation so i can i can understand the brain's wiring like that i can understand how sometimes we engage in a behavior and we have no idea why we're engaging in a behavior, but because we need to make sense of the world, we have a narrative that we organize all of our cognitive biases into and it says, okay, well, yeah. I'm doing this because it's just a story, but I feel better. But as human beings, we tend to, and it seems like this is increasing lately, we seem to be really attached to other people's behaviors and what they're doing, even when those behaviors seemingly... Don't touch us at all. Like, I remember it was, you know, like when you go to an event, you're speaking at an event and you're out at one, two o'clock in the morning. It's the after event conversations. And there's this guy, very likable guy, lovely, who got really angry about people who chose to get married but not have children. And when I mean angry, I mean Foaming at the mouth as if these people chose to get married, not have children, and then break into his home and steal his favorite TV, like that level of angry. And I'm just sitting there thinking in this conversation, what's it got to do with you? Why are you so invested in this? Why are we so invested? And, And we need to tell ourselves stories about other people and what their behaviors mean what's going on there
1: so michael gervais has just published a book um, you know really in subtitled, why do we care what people think right um and why do we care so much well the answer is that the prefrontal cortex develops over 25 years and it takes in the culture and the culture has these values attached what is wrong what is right about how you eat, about how you kill, about how you don't kill, about all of the things, whether you lie or not, or what is acceptable. And very often it is arbitrary. A lot of law is arbitrary. You know, whether you pay 30 euros for a parking ticket in Italy versus $200 in in Australia, why these arbitrariness? There is values there of what is right or what is wrong. And we teach our kids all kinds of stuff. And religion comes with packaged values, the wisdom of the ages that we must respect. Um, so, yeah, we, we individuate. We understand that growing up with uh, our culture, because I wrote about this in an article on evolutionary development of the prefrontal cortex executive functions and other parts of the brain, we lose our jaws and claws. We need other people so therefore we need a consensual domain we need consensus as to what is right and wrong and we we have a sense of like mindedness in the in the self determinism literature we need to be uh, surrounded by people who share our values so that we're not alone and, and we're not the lone voice in the wilderness and then we also regard as people as chris as uh, courageous like mandela who will go against the people around him go against opinion and come up with something supposedly more profit-like. The profits would go against the people. They would make a comment. This was better depending on change. Very complex picture. But what are we talking about here? Um, We have to live with other people to be uh, contrary, to be a contrarian, to be a revolutionary, to come up with stuff. If it's in the art world, it may be regarded as brilliant like Banksy. If it is in the political world, it may get you strangled at birth. Uh, Or on the other hand, like Hitler, it may get you an enormous following, but it's never rational. It's never logical. It is emotional. And people will believe stuff without understanding how they came to it because all they would have seen is, "Wow, this is the common consensus of my group. So the dog whistle, the echo chamber, all of these talking to your base, there is a market for everything, including complete bullshit. And especially if you can choose, as dictators do, a particular so-called political element that we need to discuss, whether it's the border, and America has many worse problems than the border, or whether it is abortion rights, which America has, you know, absolutely butchered, Um, whether it is AI, which is based on white aging male's opinion of what a person looks like of a various category, human beings have a mess, which we are trying to clean up, but the weapon is this logical pondering. It gives us a great advantage, but it's not accurate. And the question is, what do you then regard as an epistemology? What are we regarding as facts? As Paul Dell said, we fall through the floor of epistemology and we land up in ontology. Well, what is reality anyway?
0: So we, we, there's a necessity to make snapshots about other people's behaviors because collectively... It's rooted in our survival, is what I'm hearing. So we need to yeah. know that this person thinks like me, so they're less likely to steal from me, or or commit murder, or do something that violates the social mores of the tribe. Yeah. As we, oh, they'll up. back me
1: up. Oh, they'll back me up, which is probably more important for the military for others. Yep. they okay. will back me up. I'm not alone because I don't have jaws and claws anymore. I've got to rely on convincing people to argue with me, you know,
0: just as, just as strongly rooted, if not more so in our survival. So that, that makes sense. And then in modern times we emotionalize and, and form and our cognitive biases extend out into, well, does this person eat the same foods as I eat? And we get really emotional about that. So what, in what ways does that hurt me individually? when I'm being led by my cognitive biases, I don't realize that because I am certain that I am right. And of course you're wrong. How's that hurting me in ways that I might not
1: appreciate? Well, it's hurting because we are uh, hurt by the conviction that our way is the right way. You know, Frank Sinatra singing in the background, you know, we're, we're convinced by our own lack of understanding of these things that when we have come to a belief we do not recognize it as a belief subject to reasonable argument we become inflexible and then we go and do things which are terrible and let's look at the biggest experiment in the world in that was the nazis after the war or South Africans after apartheid ended. You wouldn't find a racist amongst them, for instance. But more importantly, let's take a Nazi who gave birth to children who only knew daddy was a soldier and after the war discovered, oh, wow, daddy was a merciless monster who killed or was responsible for killing millions of people. They then had to confront that daddy did these things because he was convinced of a... Nationalist socialist ideology. He was convinced in the value of a powerful, strong leader, Hitler, the strong man. What was interesting is that the voting public, for people who are despotic, are people who may not be educated, who may not have been taught to think in analytic ways, who may not have been thought to become metacognitive. So it it hurts me if I just accept, no matter how right or wrong or how altruistic my beliefs about a certain thing might be, it hurts me if I am concrete and biased that what I've seen is the only reality. It makes us inflexible. It makes us go and throw ourselves into battle and die for things that are complete rubbish. We may do things that are necessary while understanding they're wrong. We're quite capable of saying... You know, you've done this to me. I need to fight back at you. I'm going to do something horrible, which is necessary. But I am aware it's wrong. But I think it's necessary for pragmatic reasons. But emotionally, I have a sense this is terrible. Um, and so this is what uh, the kids, of Nazis, and they would give many interviews and some would convert to Judaism and go to Israel and marry and give birth to Jewish kids because they felt that was compensation. So, you know, the the ability, and here's here's the bottom line. If we realize we don't have free will, if we realize there are so many multifactorial sources to any decision, we have to engage and get really good at self-reflection. I have to think, as teachers would have told you, sit in the corner and think about what you have done. And I think that's critical. We may make decisions we have absolutely no real basis for, or we're emotionally impulsive or rather driven. We need to think about what we've done. Otherwise, the whole of Germany would still be Nazis, but they've become extremely tolerant of, you know, left-wing ideology and extremely poor on right-wing fanaticism. They reflected for years as to, was it just the punishment inflicted upon us? Or did we self-reflect on? How do I be a better human being? What am I responding to? Was this the right thing to do? Was it necessary? Was it right? Should I do it again? Was it worth it? What do I know about myself by self-reflecting?
0: People could make the argument, wouldn't that be free will? Because if there's no free will, what is the point of reflection?
1: The point is reflection is uh, a case of we are not capable even in the metacognitive view we're still using the same machine but it's not reflecting on anything else but what is the outcome and that's where you know sapolsky and others have defined executive functions and, and success as can you do the difficult things which are the correct things to do when you have a choice And what is the correct thing to do? Well, it's to make decisions based on your values. And those values are not necessarily inherently right or wrong because we don't have free will. They may be erroneous, but after the fact, can you decide I have failed, but I own it, or have I succeeded and I can own it, but still operating on the only thing we have, which is introspectively Can we look at how we went there and decide that was the wrong thing to do? At the time, we can be wrong. But can we reflect on it and go, oh, my God, that was the wrong thing to do? So how does it help us? It gives us the ability to forgive ourselves as being imperfect. On the other hand, self-reflection means if people don't have free will, should we be executing people in chambers? If we are aware that we can translate anxiety into extreme forms of aggression, you've scared the living crap out of me by attacking me. Is it a good idea to obliterate you? It may be necessary, but you have to live with the consequences. Was it the right thing to do, even if it was necessary?
0: From from a coaching perspective, what you're saying lands with me because... We all have stories about why we did what we did yesterday or an hour ago. And sometimes those stories are not very constructive. And the truth is, you might not have a clue why you did what you did. And No, ta-
1: confirmatory and, and, bias and other biases might mean that we can make brilliant arguments in that way.
0: And and, and while I think that guilt is, is a worthwhile state of being, mm. I think it's highly valuable. Shame over time, probably not so much. If you're willing to engage in reflection, you can probably change over time. So th- sure. that, And the that, core that of the
1: Talmud, to... and the, the core of the Talmud, the core of anything else is, is uh, and the entire uh, Jewish religion and the, the Gemara and the Talmud and everything, is around how you treat other people. And are you going to treat anybody or make decisions that affect anybody beyond yourself? That are the decisions you would like them to make about you. When you have made mistakes, would you want them to be merciful? And uh, if somebody else makes a mistake, would you want to be merciful towards them too? As humans, we have the capacity to be the most miserable species on this planet. On the other hand, through self-reflection, through prayer, through meditation, through values, audits, constantly auditing your values, you have the ability to correct errors to reflect and go back on decisions, on beliefs and sacrifices you made, and go in retrospect that was wrong, mea culpa, and hence law has mitigation in it. Uh, judges always want to know: Does he regret his actions? There is at least some, if not lip service, but some real consideration: Is are you sorry? What does your apology look like? And it got to be better than the devil made me do it or I was right to do this terrible thing and justified. How do you feel about who you are? And the fact is, it gives us both the ability to self-deprecate, but the ability to self-forgive. Please understand I'm a human being first, an expert later. This is a concept the courts understand. And in, in the several hundred trials I've I've taken part in as an expert witness. It is very often clearly made by the intervenes, interventions of the judge. This is a human being, therefore fallible. Why do we not accept that in daily life, that everything we do is subject to bias, to fantasies, to belief systems, to a whole range of things? Why do we believe we have free will when the process of getting from A to B is largely non-conscious? It has elements of childhood of ancestry of situation of hormones so i i was dealing with a, a colleague who was becoming attached to one or two patients and really going beyond the pale of of what they should be doing and sacrificing time and effort and giving them freebies and it really was looking unusual but it was all nurturing it was all Really interesting, being incredibly kind, wanting to protect them from all sorts of danger and driving their autonomy. And what did I do? What was my intervention? Send them for a brain scan. They had an anterior pituitary tumor, producing excessive prolactin, making them more nurturing. You know, you're sitting there with a the prolactin in the thousands when it should be below 70. Go and take the drug. The drug reduces by working on dopamine. The drug shrinks the tumor. The prolactin comes down to, you know, somewhere below 300, 400. And the person is different towards the patients. Less nurturing, setting boundaries and limits, being more confronting and directing, and going... What the hell happened? A surge of prolactin changed your behavior.
0: That's interesting because philosophy would have never reached that conclusion. And I think we do that when we see behaviors that are not considered pro-social. Like this person, again, is so irresponsible. And we never stop to think, could someone's brain be affecting their behavior. It's almost like, well, what does the brain have to do with behavior at the end of the day? And well, if it was the took us,
1: we'd all be proctologists, (laughs) let's face it, you know. And I think I I start off my lectures to my students with as follows, what is the study of psychology? It is the study of the human mind. What is the human mind? It is the product of the human brain. And the human brain in totality produces mind and consciousness. And now we have a big problem. Just defining those things and how the mechanics and how it operates and what the influences are is where you begin to say we don't have free will. Anything that we're doing, which we think we came to through some logical, pondering, intelligent process can be defined by something as simple as whether your mother kept a cat during her pregnancy with you.
0: And you say that, I think I know where you're going with this, because if your mother kept a cat, what is likely or more likely to have happened?
1: Well, number one, cats don't give you a good biome, dogs do. So the gut that she was developing you know, by my dog licking me versus her cat ignoring her, I have a better biome because my filthy, dirty dog will lick my face all the time. Second of all, her cat has... Her cat has an interesting uh, capacity to make rats love it by giving them a parasite. And that parasite is going to influence whether the cat or whether the um, the rat loves cat urine or not. The cat will find the rat getting really close to it. It'll eat the rat and get plasmodium, gondii, whatever it is. And uh, what is that going to do? Well, if that gets into the fetal brain, it's going to do nothing except make it more of a risk-taking kid is more likely to drive quickly at 19 and have a car wreck because they have a parasite at, uh, in the fetus provided by the kitty cat, just because rats need to be eaten to get you know, this Gandhi thing into your brain. Could it be your son is reckless because he was infected by a cat parasite?
0: Ah, this kid needs needed, more discipline you know. or they have a toxoparasite.
1: parasite. Yeah. Or wow. to think of the 50s where women were, who, certain women exposed to, let's say, android uh, steroids, you know, um, androsterone or, or straightforward testosterone to prevent their mothers from miscarrying or girls who were born as a twin to a boy were regarded as more aggressive. Now, the aggressive was a feature more of what we regarded as female gender-based behavior which would be passivity and playing with tea cozies and things. What really happened was that these girls were more aggressive, as in were interested in more mechanical toys, were keen to delay their giving birth because they were much more focused on career, were so-called more aggressive because they followed more masculine pursuits and so on. Nothing to do with anything uh, except for the fact that they were exposed to a hormone Perhaps that made them more aware of disapproval because, hey, I'm a young teenage man full of testosterone and I see disapproval in people's eyes where there isn't any. So I'm more socially phobic and don't like talking in public. And I'm also very aware of my social status as a wealthy man. So I'm going to give to charity. I'm really charitable because I believe in it. Or maybe you're very high testosterone and very sensitive to your social status. Giving to charity gives you social status. It's an aggressive act. Sure. So, yeah, these behaviors that we carry out, we're not terribly sure why. Can I give you a horrible example? Yes, please in, do. In South Africa, there would be guys who would be on strike. These were predominantly black laborers who were on strike because they were paid nothing. They were forced to live in hostels. They were not allowed out at night. They had to carry documents. They were a really angry group. And so they would strike, and, but there were guys who would take the money to break the strike. They would go and work, and these perfectly normal, average, low-middle-income or low-income guys, eight of them one day turned on one of the guys who is working, and they put something terrible around his neck and set him on fire and kill him. Now, how do eight ordinary human beings turn on someone who they know, and murder him in the most shocking way over money? Well, the answer is de-individuation. These guys have no idea why they did it. They try to justify well protecting the bigger group and describe the individuation but the law in South Africa accepted that these men developed a mob mentality, developed a de-individuation where the responsibility was not theirs alone. It was shared amongst eight of them. Mm. And so they murdered a man in cold blood. This is not logical free will. This is really knee-jerk, non-conscious stuff. So there are countless examples which would say that we need to think that what's going on is not what's going on. Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich in the Trump years were talking about this. The truth is not the truth, or the truth is what you believe it is, absolutely correct. They so were I, looking at changing human behavior through emotional appeal, not logical science. They were getting people to accept truths that are only relatively true.
0: So that, that leads me to this question. So I think one of the things that we alluded to earlier was when you are acting... On your cognitive biases, and you are not yes. examining all of the multifaceted causes that are driving your behavior. You're, you're limiting your own scope of possibilities. Your world is getting smaller and smaller. Use the example of someone who has absolute opinions and, and has quite binary thinking being linked to education. When you said that, I thought about my stepfather, who was a very complicated and and Not a great person to be around. How do I start to recognize my cognitive biases in my day to day interactions and my thinking and perhaps reconcile them? Is that possible?
1: Perhaps not in the moment, because in the moment, that's where the bias operates. Mm -hmm. But through, you know, if you think of universities, they punish you when you don't think. In many courses, obviously, the courses where you just regurgitate the stuff. Um, but certainly, the whole process of a university education, which in crack even defends you against Alzheimer's later in life, is utilizing more, in your, more of your brain to self-reflect. And because we have this uh, way of learning, which can get us into trouble, and because we have biases, at the same time, we do have volitional control over self-reflection. The refusal to self-reflect becomes in itself a passion developed from an emotion which says I don't have to I am right and this creates a conviction which may get you very far in life politically it may create something really important so if the pathology of Martin Luther created a whole religion If you get that process of thinking right, you can go far and people celebrate your birthday for thousands of years. If you get that thinking wrong, you can end up vilified and marginalized and slaughtered and even assassinated. So, uh, for instance, if you look at at people, uh, Israeli prime ministers who, who get assassinated for promoting peace and people who get elected for, you know, terrifying views on things and, And, you know, the us versus them, we may not recognize it in the moment, but the whole point is to be uh, self-reflective and compassionate towards yourself and other people in that we're all humans and subject to error. And every... Research has a probability of being right. If we do this research 95 times out of 100, it will give us these results. But in the five times out of 100, where the error variance kicks in, where the main effects isn't there, we've got to have the compassion to ourselves and others. We can be wrong, and it's okay. If you accept we don't have free will, you are much more prone to say something else in my head made me do it, what I thought was necessary and right at the time may have been completely wrong. So I think in that in the moment we may not be able to exercise a wonderful relational frame, double-looped logic. The soft skills may defeat us. Remember, we have this EQ and IQ at war. In between is the mediation of language. This is what I've introduced in England to box play, one of my companies, what we've introduced to Kuth in working with the California health system to provide mental health for kids is this idea of relational frameworks may create all the learning that's distorted your thinking. It gives you the capacity to self-reflect and learn about yourself. That's where the forgiveness, compassion, Mm -hmm. and self-critical behavior comes in.
0: I want to talk about the work that you're doing in London and in California. So just to recap, go back a bit first. So the first step is the willingness to engage in self-reflection. You have to be willing to go there. Yes. And then the second thing... That I- and it's uncomfortable.
1: The willingness is to go mm-hmm. and live with the discomfort that is going to cause. It can be mortifying. to yes. 2nd guess yourself. You've got to be willing to suffer.
0: Be willing to suffer through that process. Very well put there. And, and, and the second thing, is acknowledging that you are going to be wrong. And that is okay. With your work in London and in California, what else do you put together in terms of the framework to maybe help someone who is young and trying to navigate their way through the world?
1: Sure. So particularly in California, targeting 13 to 25 year olds, and staying away from mental health as an issue talking about, okay, what is the opposite of some kind of illness, whatever model, and this comes into the work in in London with Box Play Box Media, the educational technology company, is how we learn as human beings. Everything I've been speaking about in terms of relational frame theory or science now, which is part of acceptance commitment the therapies, and uh, certainly talking about the way we learn and the way we get information across our you know our, uh, adverse uh, experiences as kids and our didactic teaching and everything we assimilated from our culture until the brain is mature. What does this incorporate? So I've created something called the theory of change, which was the request of the company I was working with to win the contract in California, um, which was uh, based on motivational interviewing, self-determination, relational frame theory, reactance theory, where we hate to be told what to do, in Peter Sengi first discipline terms, but more importantly, even suggesting a behavior change to get us, you know, biased against doing it. Just because he suggested it, mom doesn't mean I'm going to do it because I'm striving for autonomy. So I took as a starting point in any model of how to understand and how to grow as a kid, as an adult, is the major drive for any human being is, is the dominating principle of organization of our brain is to seek autonomy. In other words, the sense of control, the sense of self-efficacy and agency that I'm guiding my own life. It is not defined by my box or by even my own religious beliefs or my convictions politically, but I'm going to guide my own life because I need the sense that what I do makes the difference. Behind autonomy is my efficacy what I'm doing is going to have the desired outcome in Sapolsky terms. I'm going to do difficult things that are the right things to do, which value the temporarily distant future over what I have now in Angela Duckworth terms grit. I'm going to do things that are difficult and challenging so that I have autonomy so that what I'm doing now gives me the best outcome later. And if you ask a psychopath sitting in prison, What you did was good for you in the long run. Of course, it wasn't. You're in prison. I'm not. Don't look down on me as a psychologist. You're the guy locked up because you couldn't self-reflect for good brain reasons. So, yes, autonomy with the background of of self-efficacy, of a sense of agency, of power, of control, very important. Well, guiding your own life around what? And this is where values come in. Mm. And these values are determined by Everything you've done, your image to date, as uh, Tignum pointed out, hey, listen, Scott uh, from Tignum pointed out, we have an image of ourselves, which is the entire encapsulation of everything that's ever happened to us, which is going to define a lot of our biases and non-conscious beliefs. So we've got to decide on the values, how we go around doing things, because, yeah, I want autonomy. I want to guide my own life around what is critical, vital, and cherished for me, my self-reflected values, what I want to live by, what I believe in, what I trust about myself and my history. Going forward, my values are valuing the the future over the present. I'm going to sacrifice, even sacrifice values to get somewhere in the future. So values and identity...
0: Values and identity, just to make together. sure I, I understand this, yeah. it almost acts as a compass to direct reflection.
1: Yeah. And it can be your moral compass, it can be a compass of everything you hold valuable, mm-hmm. it can be your parents forced you to go into medicine, but that's not what you want to be. Autonomy growing through your childhood years, and this is the job of, of childhood uh, through teenage to adolescence to young adulthood is learning autonomy, learning to guide your own life, deciding on your own values, even if you're rebelling against your parents or your community. This is what, how I want to live. This is what is true for me. And surrounding you then needs to be your squad, your like-minded individuals. In self-determination, I have autonomy. I need like-minded individuals around me to support those, to share those values, share those views. I might have to convince them of it through argument, political stances. But nevertheless, I'm going to achieve autonomy around values with the help of like-minded people who share those values and endorse those values for me, which could be a bad thing if they're endorsing nationalist socialist values or failed nasty values. And then I'm going to seek growth, mastery in the Michael Gervais terms of I'm going to get better and better at what's important to me in guiding my own life. And now we've established the definition of purpose. Mm, So the self-reflection is what are my values? How am I going to drive my life around those values? Are there people who support and endorse those values and help me self-reflect, who hold me to account, but also support the better angels in me, And that is going to allow me then to embark on growth, to get better and better at endorsing and espousing through self-reflection, mastering myself. And that defines purpose.
0: So, you know, I, I think sometimes people react strongly to the notion of we don't have as much free will as we might think we do, if we even have it at all. Because I think what they're reacting to is the perception that you are taking away my autonomy. And what I think I hear you saying is, even if I do not have the level of free will that I believed I did, I can still achieve autonomy if I were a sense to of autonomy. a sense say. of autonomy, which might be. so it's the sense so like anything good. else because yeah.
1: we we don't know reality we we can't uh-huh. really find reality. We need a lot of consensus as to what that might be. But the sense of autonomy, the sense of self-efficacy in Bandura terms, the sense of social learning theory, the sense that what I do has agency, that I have control over my own life, driving it through the engines of what I perceive to be my values is really critical. But being flexible that those values may change subject to self-reflection, subject to the argument of other people who are critical to me, Then I can achieve growth and a sense of mastery. I'm going to find happiness. But free will is only a sense of free will. And within that, I need to have a sense of agency and autonomy. But remember, it's a sense of it. It's not the reality because there is so much out of control. But over time, and this is the point, the executive functions work well over time, even though they're weak. The limbic system is now the here and now, and you will survive only if you do this. And we have no idea what the, this really is drawing on. And that's the critical thing. If we accept we don't have free will, then we engage in more introspection. We are more likely to be self-critical. We are less likely to believe that what I say is right. Well, if what we're I honest believe re- is right.
0: If we're really honest with ourselves, it's more the sense like you're saying, than the actual thing that we're after. And and the irony there is by accepting that I might not have free will, I engage in practices that give me a greater sense of the things that I wanted from free will in the first place.
1: I'm flying the plane, but if a storm comes out of nowhere and sinks me, well, there's nothing I can do about that except try and be aware and try and reflect on my pathway, on my destiny. But what does this do? If you follow the model, and this is the model driving the California project on uh, on behalf of Kuth, uh, the company in England and the USA, um, what does this do? This model implies psychological flexibility, both in terms of what I think is reality, what I think is an epistemology for my life, which is really what, ontology becomes the reality, my perception of what is real and what is not. So I'm looking for psychological flexibility with a sense of autonomy, with a sense of self-reflection, but it's over time. And yes, acceptance, commitment, relational frames, all of this fits in. I've designed an integrated model where everything fits in. You can take Angela Duckworth and plug her in. You can take Bandura and plug him in. You can plug in Uh, the solipsists and the determinists and the Sapolsky's into this model. It's how we achieve psychological flexibility, even drawing on Dan Pink and other commentaries. This model accomplishes it because it is based on the idea, if we don't have free will, we need a sense of control. We need a sense of agency, a sense of self-efficacy, That what I do makes a difference when you lose that hopelessness, helplessness, despair, aggression, fighting back becomes your default.
0: I keep hearing with people I work with more and more around the conversation of resilience and burnout and people are feeling more despondent and greater levels of stress and while yeah. I don't think I don't think I have the level of expertise and perspective on everyone's lives to say that a lack of cognitive flexibility is a root cause, it definitely is not helping. And it may be one of the only pathways out of that, to where, regardless sure. of how you got there, you can't get to someplace else without that level of flexibility. This has been as it always is, an amazing conversation. I, I hope to have many more. Where can we find more information on you? Because an hour conversation does not do you justice.
1: So, so on uh, Roysugarman.com.au, the Australian website I have just gives a bit of input into the things I'm busy with. Uh, have a look at um, the public company Couth, uh in England. Uh, Kuth LLC and PLC, depending which side of the Atlantic. Have a look at Box Play, Box Media. Uh, all online these companies are doing amazing work both to uh, grow people's soft skills. Because now we come down to this bridge between the EQ and the IQ is this way we mediate the relational frames using language. Um, but otherwise, just engage with me, you know, through the website. Uh, I'm happy to do talks for corporates and other groups because intrinsically this leads me to my coaching in peak performance along these lines of of, uh, autonomy, mastery, purpose, and and so on as an applied neuroscientist. Um, So, yeah, definitely can do that. And um, again, looking at our company, what Transhuman is doing in Delaware, uh, we have an AI company, AI science company in Delaware. Um, working with people like Chris Mapman from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Amanda Johnston, uh, you know, in helping us develop the app. Uh, Amanda was the one of the influences. Time Magazine, 2019. These are all my collaborators. So when you move around looking at all the collaborators, you begin to see what we're trying to do in making the world a better place and reaching, being, you know, reaching millions of people and uh, changing their life through soft skills, but. Uh, The point about what you mentioned about uh, cognitive flexibility, psychological flexibility has a series of toolkits of things that you can learn to do, uh, which are going to give you the flexibility. So without free will, we need psychological flexibility to avoid burnout. And this is what I work on. So if any of the corporates who are watching are interested, contact me. I'm happy to give talks to the corporates and teach them what are the skills underneath Psychological flexibility if we lack free will.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for all of this, Dr. Shergerman.
1: Thank you, Bobby. It's always such a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at the selfhelpantidote.com to share your feedback, insights, and recommendations on what topics you'd like us to explore in the future.